back when we set out the dates for our season of fasting and prayer, we set them out as January 8th to 28th, and the 28th seemed a million miles away. And many freezing days later, here we are, January 28th. You have, you've officially made it to the other side of 21 days of fasting and prayer. What a beautiful experience it's been. I mean, it's just, I, I have loved every piece of it. I've loved the way that you have been engaged in it, chosen to be engaged, talked about your engagement and all that, all that went into that. Um, I, from the beginning, I mentioned that, that the song by Red Rocks, More, really fit for me what was going on what was going on this season and just heard the words as we closed up i want more more of you god and that really that really for me was was the theme of this fast it wasn't so much about uh we need to do this or, or you know some major uh initiative that we were focusing on but just asking god would you would you reveal yourself to us more would you fill us more with you that we might be empowered for anything you bring our way, that you might open our eyes for any opportunity you have. So uh, it ends today. How are you? So like when we say it ends on the 28th, when is it ending for you? It ends on the 28th, and this is the 21st day. What are you, how are you handling it? Because people have been asking this. Yeah, some people <clears> like <throat> the sun cracked this morning. They're like, it's done. Uh, for me, it's, it's all the way through. It's kind of like opening presents on Christmas Day. You, you can't, you got to get to the actual, like the, the finish line. So for me, I'm going to go all the way through. And honestly, like this has been a, a cool thing. I was actually talking about this with Riley yesterday. You know, one of the things that I fasted from that I've mentioned to all of you is candy. And mm -hmm. I, I just didn't realize how like reflexively I was grabbing at it. And the first again, I, to, I told you the, the first day when kids are just dumping candy on my desk, it was like, Satan was like, look at me in the eyes, like, all right, we're putting you to the test right now. Um, but now, like, yesterday, talking with Riley, I was like, I, I don't even miss it. Mm. We have all this candy in our house that has been sitting, because she doesn't really eat it. It's all me now, I'm realizing. Um, but I don't miss it. I, I don't look for it. And even when, you know, there are the occasional times where I'll throw Jolly Ranchers out to kids um, for getting right answers or doing what I tell them to, because sugar bribery works in the classroom. Um, and usually... I would, one for you, one for me kind of thing. And uh, it, like at the beginning, I was still having to think like, no, stop, what are you doing? And now it's, it's gone. So I, while there are other pieces of my fast that I haven't shared that are going to be shutting down after this evening, I think I'm going to see how far we can go with candy. Good deal. So, well, that's cool. great. And that, I think that is a piece of this now is to determine, is there something God wants you to continue? Mm -hmm. Is there, and obviously he wants us to continue praying to him, but is it possible that you would take on some form of fasting every week or once a month, something that just continues continues that, uh, that pattern in your life? That, that can be really helpful. The formative <clears throat> piece of this is whenever I did want that candy, and I, I said openly at the beginning that I'm not a Bible app guy. I'm more mm -hmm. like I have the paper Bible, and I've been sticking to that. Um, but it has been something where you know, when I've thought about, like, hey, I, I want a piece of candy, instead I'm replacing it. And so I'm reflexively pulling out my phone more than usual, but to, to actually you know, catch a verse, whether, whether that's part of the gospel reading, just rereading it or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But that, mm -hmm. So that formative piece has been really influential, and I, I'm fired up about it. So. Good deal. Yeah. Your uh, update came, and one of the things you'll notice, we're going to start 
somebody suggested this past week that we start pulling out QR codes. And I'm like, how do you how do you build them? What do you do? And it turns out Google Chrome makes it very, very easy. Except you didn't that draw they, that? No, they all have a goofy little dinosaur in it. So we'll have to have a contest to name the goofy cell field dinosaur. But anyway, <laughs> if you don't if you don't get the update yet, you can actually go ahead and uh, put your camera on that right now and it'll bring up the site. It asks for your first name, last name, email, and it will go ahead and sign you right up for the general interest uh, emails from Southfield and, and the update is what comes through that. So the majority of the update is about breaking into groups this season. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted you to be able to see it nice and big be able to see everything that's going on. You notice the code changed on that. So you can actually jump to groups right now and you could sign up for any of those. Uh, we have all kinds of opportunities going on. One thing I meant to ask, we said every day and Thursday's not on there. What's, what happened to Thursday? Okay, gotcha. There's a group. It's just, it's not part of the Gospels groups. I get it. Um, so anyway, uh, here are the groups that exist, and for the most part, you know, there, there are different, uh, different specializations, so to speak. There's a Wednesday evening group for young men, there's a, there's a young women's group that's meeting on Friday, and then you see whether or not it's a women's group, a men's group, or women and men uh, together, all kinds of different opportunities. We give you different days, obviously, different leaders. Some of the leaders that are, that are jumping in on this, are, they're, they're brand new leaders, and I, I love that they're, they're taking their next step in growth. I'll tell you what, if you want to grow, lead a group. It's one thing to go to a group. It's another thing to, to manage the squirrels and, and keep all that. It's just, it's great. It's a great opportunity. So uh, one thing you may notice on there, I chose to, to not lead a group this time around, and that's twofold, really. I wanted to be involved more in just the, the equipping of the group leaders. So we've had uh, training sessions last week, and we're going to have them again this week, just getting things going. But then it is my plan to attend every group at least once, to just kind of do a, a rove of the different groups. I actually did this last year uh, with, with the group Dominique was leading, and I gotta tell you, it was, it was like one of the best days of my year. It was so fun to go be a part of that group, and I hate to say it, we kind of off-tracked on the study and just had a great ranging discussion of all kinds of things, so um, I'm looking forward to jumping into different groups and uh, getting, getting connected to people that way, but I, I'm curious, and I didn't ask you ahead of time with this to prep it, but why should someone join a group? Why? I think first <clears throat> and foremost, it's, it's a place to build relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I know, like, from, from me, my personality, which is different than a lot of people, the upfront is easy. I, you know, I don't mind being up here, because if I screw up up here, it at least makes people laugh. Uh, but the one-on-one, -on -one, has always been a challenge for me. Hmm. Whether that, you know, if, if I'm in a one-on-one -on -one relationship is because I have spent time doing some kind of activity with that person and we've slowly gotten to know each other, slowly worked into that. Um, so when I look at the, the list of the people that I'm closest to in my life, it's because we've intentionally done things together. And that small group, that small group uh, atmosphere is an opportunity to do it together. You're, you're going through doing the same reading, you're going through the same struggles, you're sharing prayer requests with each other. So it's, it's an intimate setting that doesn't have to, you know, you're not walking in night one and saying, hi, I'm Brian and here's all my guts. Mm -hmm. But eventually you get to a point where you feel comfortable with those people um, to, to share some, some things that you may be struggling with or your family might be struggling with or 
um, something that might be going on at, at work or you know, with whatever, whatever else may come up in life. And that relationship piece, I'm telling you, a lot of people think, oh, I, I have enough people in my life. I have coworkers, I have family, I have this, I have that. You need someone to rely on. I, how many commercials are there today for therapy, for you know, needing to talk to someone? I agree. It's, it's good to talk. We're supposed to share our struggles. We're even supposed to confess our sins to each other, right? Yeah. We should be in that, um, in that space. But this is, a, this is an opportunity for you to build a relationship that's centered on God. And I yeah. think that that's the key. And you're not building it only because you share, you know, Bears or Illini fandom or whatever. You're not sharing it only because you love Italian food. You're not sharing it only because you love playing pickleball or, you know, whatever it is. This is a relationship that is everybody's coming in knowing we're starting here, and then we're getting to know each other through that lens. I, 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 would, I would add to that that um, when we use the word church, our brains think of this. Our brains think of a building. Or when we use the word church, our brains think of a service gathered. But you know what church is? This and this. Two people being together. It's body. It's the body of Christ. And so it's us gathering. It's one thing to come to an event where you're hearing a message that's being brought to you, singing some songs. It's another thing to actually engage in relationship. And, and we, we believe that relationships are transformative. And here's the, the truth of that. They're transformative sometimes because I sit with you and you are so biblically brilliant that I learn things from you. And it's transformative because sometimes you do something boneheaded, stupid, and hurt my feelings. 90-10. And, and I have to work through that. Yeah. And, and people don't understand. They think that relationships in the body of Christ are all supposed to be, you know, tiptoe through the tulips. Isn't this wonderful? We will have points that, ah, oh, that didn't feel good. And hopefully in the body of Christ, we actually work through that yeah. instead of, you know, I've uh, been here for three years, time to go find another church where I can start all over again. So we grow in the relationships through, through both the positive that comes as well as the sandpaper. Mm -hmm. It's both pieces. And then to be able to share those pieces of life, like you said, uh, to be able to share a prayer request. We, uh, Don Yost was teaching us a method of, of taking prayer requests. And I'll tell you what, just the, the, the group that we met with Friday night, we did that together. I know something about someone I didn't know before. He commanded us to contact them during the week, and so I'm going to because I listened to Don. But, um, you know, that, that extra bit of connection was really, it was really helpful. I loved and, it. And at the start, it's awkward. If you've never done it before, it's hard. Mm -hmm. it, it hurts. But you, like I said, if, you, if you're willing to commit eight weeks, commit yeah. eight weeks to starting a relationship if you haven't uh, done one of these before, just, just commit to the start and, and see where God takes it. And, and one other piece I'd throw into this is when you sign up for a group, it truly is encouraging to the person who's leading. Yeah. And so having, having you there really does make a difference. Mm -hmm. So you're actually ministering to somebody as you participate in their group together. So what I'd like to do, um, we'll, we'll move to the message, but would you take a moment to, to pray over this season of groups? Thanks. God, we thank you for everything you've done through our season of prayer and fasting as we enter the, the journey of doing the gospel reading. We know that this life that we're all living right now is attributed to you. It is something that we 
we could not live without you. And, and we thank you for giving us uh, guidance through the Gospels. We thank you for the, the message of the Gospels. You know, here today, we're reading about um, Jesus' final, final time on earth, his final moments with, with his best friends, with his, with his group um, of disciples. And I, I pray that as we enter our season of groups, that for the, the people who are first-timers, you give them the, the courage and the confidence not only to sign up, but to, uh, to dive in. For those who are seasoned vets at groups, I pray that you would give them the eyes for, for the people who may be struggling or, or give them the, the wherewithal to, to know to ask someone to join them. Uh, and, and then once the groups get rolling, God, I, I pray that there's some real transformation that happens. Real transformation... Um, not just through getting to know each other, but through getting to know you. And I pray that everything that we do is always in your name, in your honor, growing to, um, to change and, and look more like the way that you originally designed it, perfect, rather than um, dragging away like the world is trying to do. So we, we thank you for the chance that we have to be able to gather together, to read your word freely, and to, to get to know you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. So um, if you're new or newer with us, one of the things we've been engaging this year is reading, reading the same part of the Bible together. And we started in October, we read through the book of Proverbs three times, and now we started at the beginning of the year reading through the Gospels, and we're going to read all the Gospels on through uh, the end of John, John chapter 21, and that particular chapter, we will be reading the day after Easter. So we're taking a chapter a day, reading through. And I, the, the fun part is where we are today and tomorrow is the only time that it's not uh, a different chapter. Uh, chapter 26 of Matthew is 75 verses long. And so we read, I think, uh, the first 40, 46 verses, and then we'll read from 47 on through the end tomorrow. But you're starting to move now, as Brian said, into those final days, final hours of Jesus, reading through uh, the torment he went through for our sins, his burial, and ultimately rising again. And then later this week, we will start into Mark. Mark is uh, 16 chapters long. It is a shorter book than Matthew. Uh, you're going to find that it's more succinct. It's more precise. Mark doesn't give you a lot of, a lot of detail. He really, he really sticks with uh, bare-bones explanations and, and very, very, very simple. As you're reading it, what, what you realize is that it is quite probable that both Matthew and Luke used what Mark had written in part as a source for what they wrote. But then they take what Mark has written and elaborate on those stories in different ways. Remember, Matthew himself is an eyewitness to what happens with Jesus. Uh, Luke is not. And so Luke flatly says in his, in his, uh, in his gospel, I, I relied on faithful eyewitnesses in order to bring together the stories about Jesus. What is going to happen now that's really kind of interesting is now that you've read Matthew and you're starting to read Mark, there will be points that you'll say, I remember that story from Matthew. And you may want to jump back and see how does Matthew 
tell this story in comparison to Mark? What are the differences along the way? And again, more often than not, the, di- the differences are more succinct as opposed to elaborated. So you'll see a little bit more in the other Gospels as you're going along. But this is part of the fun now to start doing that comparison. If you're going to be involved in a group, <clears throat> what, we're, what we're wanting you to do is take those seven days worth of chapters and each day, uh, whether it is a, a Bible journal like we've shown you where you can buy just Mark and it's got the, the passages on one side and, and blank, blank on the other side and you're going to be answering questions about those chapters. Four really simple questions. What surprised me? And surprise doesn't mean I never knew this before. This is brand new to me. One of the surprises for me last week was as we were reading the story about the Canaanite woman, that when she asked the first time, Jesus doesn't respond to her. That was surprising to me. I, I kind of I forgot about that detail of the story. So what surprised you? And then, and then you might even go a little further. So why did it surprise you? What was happening there? What did you learn about God in the passage? What did you learn about people And then, what are you supposed to be doing with this? Because the Scripture isn't just meant for intellectual stimulation. It's meant for life change. What's the transformation that's supposed to be taking place? Now, there is a fifth question. The fifth question is, what do I need to study more? What do I need? This just, I don't know anything about this one, or this one didn't make sense to me. Where do I need some help? And I suspect that for a lot of our groups, that's where we're going to spend a little bit of time together, talking about, I didn't get this. Did you get this? What's going on? And, And we'll be pulling out our study Bibles and checking the notes and all that stuff and just trying to dig in and try to understand what was going on in that passage. One of the things you're going to notice with Mark is his ending is really abrupt. I mean, it's just like, it's earth, the brakes hit. And you're like, what happened? All the others have flowery, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and, and all these pieces that Mark just kind of, I'm done writing now. You, you wonder what happened. Did he get disrupted, or was that real? What happened there? And then at the end of Mark, you'll read a little bit further, and you'll, our, our Bibles will tell us this was probably not in the original manuscripts that someone later came along and didn't feel good about how abruptly Mark ended, and so they added a little bit at the end. And, and so you can still read that, but understand that when Mark ended, he ended. He did not put a pretty bow on the end because, again, he's just giving the facts. He's not bringing the story together the way Matthew, Luke, and John do. So I hope you enjoy that reading. Here's one of the best parts about this, and we didn't plan this ahead of time. We read Mark chapter 1 on February 1st. We read Mark chapter 2 on February 2nd. And we follow for 16 days we'll be on the date. And it'll feel so good. Because every day I'm going, oh, which one am I on today? So we'll get totally messed up in Luke, I promise. And John's going to send us to crazy land. But at least for 16 days we we will be on track. So what we've been doing with Sunday morning then is trying to answer some of the questions that are coming up as you're doing reading. And, and as it turns out, I didn't really think it would, would land this way, but I'm glad it has. We're just doing questions because there are plenty. There are plenty. There's a lot to dig into. And so the first one involves this story Jesus tells about the fig tree. Uh, that one really rattled a lot of people. They're like, what in the world is going on here? So let's just let's read the beginning of the story. <clears throat> it says, in the morning... This is uh, Matthew chapter 21, 18 to 21. 
In the morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the fig tree withered up. So Jesus walks over to a fig tree, no fruit, die. Tree dies. <laughs> like, what? Doesn't sound very Jesus-like, doesn't it? Shouldn't you have said figs? And all of a sudden it was covered with figs. Why does, why does he kill the tree? This just seems so cold. What's going on? And, and, and in Mark it says the figs were not in season. So you're like, okay, he walked up to a fig tree which was not in season. There were no figs and he killed it. Any of you own a grapevine right now? Have you gone out into your yard to check if you have grapes right now? I promise you, you do not. Even what was left, the robins have eaten them. They're gone. They're done. It's over. So what was Jesus doing here? Why in the world would he curse something that shouldn't be bearing fruit in the first place at that season? So what we have in Matthew chapter 21 begins with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Then he goes in and he cleanses the temple. What's supposed to be going on at the temple? Love and worship of God. And instead, people were taking advantage of people. They were doing horrible things to people in order for them to worship God. There were sacrifices that were required. And people would come with their sacrifice. And they'd go, hmm, this dove just won't do. Here, you need a different, you need one of our doves for a special price of. And the price was marked up way more than the dove you just brought. They were taking advantage of people. Jesus said, this, enough of this. Tables flipped. So you may think Jesus is just still in kind of an edgy mood after the temple. And, and he walks up and sees the fig tree and he's, and he's irritated about this. What's going on here? Well, I don't know what you know about figs. Here's what I know about figs. They make, they make great Newtons, all right? I've, this is the extent of my knowledge of figs. Figs are not native to Illinois. Things that are native to Illinois, I know a lot about. I've not seen a fig tree except that I think I saw one one time at the, at the nursery over there on LaGrange in a greenhouse. Outside of that, I've not seen a fig tree in the wild. So let me give you an image. This is what Jesus would have seen. This is a fig tree. That's a pretty sizable tree, right? I mean, that's not just... I'm expecting a dinky little kind of peanuts Christmas tree with a fig off of it, but sizable tree. And if you know trees, I've got a pretty good sense of trees. I can, I can see a tree from a distance ago. That's an oak tree. I may not necessarily know the exact brand, but that's an oak tree. I got that, right? From a distance, they could tell by now, that's a fig tree. I also showed you some pictures of figs. So there they are on the tree. The leaf is very, uh, it's, it's, got, it's almost got fingers, big, long. It's like the one, we had sassafras in, in St. Louis. It's kind of like a sassafras leaf. And then, and then you see the inside of the fig outside of the cookie. That's what it looks like. So, so that's, that's a fig. And Jesus walks up and he sees this tree in full leaf. And now he's looking for leaves, figs. So let's say that it was a, you know, a mature fig tree. There's a lot of place for fig there, right? 
There's a lot of place for a fig. So here's what I did. And then the reason I'm telling you this today is I want you, I wish I'd have brought a fork or a spoon. Oh, well, maybe I'll grab one between services. I want you to be able to pick up your fork, your spoon, and eat for yourself. I don't, I don't want you to have to come here and I have to do the Emmett thing with you. Did you enjoy that? Come back next week, we'll give you more food. I want you to be able to grab your own fork, grab your own spoon, and dig into the Word of God. So what you need to be able to do is go to sources that will provide you answers. And I'm promising you this. If you Google it, you will come up with wacko land. I mean, it's, it's all over the place on Google, right? So you've got to kind of look and say, are there sources that are reliable and trustworthy? And I mentioned this before, but you've got to get into God questions, okay? If you're looking, you don't have a commentary. I mean, commentaries are, what are they? They're comments on the Word of God, right? They take the Word of God, give you comments about a verse. Most of us can't afford a ton of commentaries on every book in the Bible. This is an online commentary, and they're doing a great job. I mean, I've not come to anything yet. This is an, a conservative evangelical site. I've not come to an answer yet that I've gone, eh, you got that one wrong. I, time and time again, they've been very helpful. What I'm still doing is after I read something there, I'm going and checking another source, making sure that, that there's consistency there. So what I loved is they took some time to explain figs to me beyond Newton's. The fruit of the fig tree generally appears before the leaves. So, and that's like a lot of things, right? You have an apple tree, you get the, you get the bud, and you get the, you get the very tiny apple before the leaves really start to pop. So same thing. The fruit is starting to form before there is any leaf. Because the fruit is green, it blends in with the leaves almost until it's ripe. You can't tell the difference. Therefore, when Jesus and his disciples saw from a distance that the tree had leaves, they would have expected it to have fruit. It's reasonable. If there were no leaves, maybe it has forming fruit. Or maybe it's past season. But the fact that there were leaves says there's probably fruit. Might not be ripe yet, but there's probably fruit. They would have expected to have fruit on it, even though it was earlier in the season than would be normal for a fig tree to be bearing fruit. So it's reasonable to expect there's fruit on here. Now, keep going. Also, each tree would often produce two or three crops of figs each season. My tomato plants do this, right? I mean, I'll, go, I'll let that tomato ripen from spring. They're doing really well. I start picking them. And it's like the tomato goes, okay, I know I'm going to die. And so there's this quick burst, usually in, in late July, early August, of buds and quick tomatoes once again. They're not as big as the others. They're not as flavorful as the others. But it's like the plant saying, one more shot, guys. Well, this is true of figs. They'll produce more than one crop. And in some parts of Israel, this was intriguing, it might have figs on it 10 out of 12 months of the year. Even though Mark comments that it's out of season, may have been out of the, the first growing season, the main season, but it is reasonable to think that there would be some fig left on this big tree. So this really helped me because, again, I always thought, why is Jesus cursing something that didn't have the chance of having fruit anyway? It did have the chance of having fruit. 
There was a possibility of fruit on that vine. It also explains why Jesus and his disciples would be looking for fruit on the fig tree, even if it was not the main growing season. The fact that the tree already had leaves on it, though it was in a higher elevation around Jerusalem, and therefore would have been outside the normal season for figs, would have seemed to be a good indication that there might be fruit on it. Now he takes it further. The presence of fruitful fig trees was considered to be a symbol of blessing and prosperity for the nation of Israel. So we keep hearing about figs and wondering why. Because the fig tree was a symbol for Israel. And it was either a fruitful fig tree or a barren fig tree, depending on what was going on. Likewise, the absence or death of of a fig tree would symbolize judgment and rejection. Symbolically, the fig tree represented the spiritual deadness of Israel, who, while very religious outwardly, very leafy, right? Lots of leaves, lots of symbols of life, though very religious outwardly, with all the sacrifices and ceremonies, they were spiritually barren because of their sin. By cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree, causing it to wither and die, Jesus was pronouncing the coming judgment of Israel and demonstrating his power to carry it out. So he's saying, I have the power to take out a fig tree, and I have the power to take out anything. I have the authority and power to do so. Now, then it gets into this, and this is really important. If you didn't catch this this week in the reading you will start to see this pattern. Jesus expects fruit. If you are living, you should be fruitful. If you are dead, there will be no fruit. And one of the questions, remember we had our five questions, but then there were some other gospel questions as well. One of the questions was, how does Jesus respond to people and situations? You will see time and time again, Jesus does not respond well when something that should be bearing fruit is not bearing fruit. I mean, it it breaks his heart and it makes him angry when something that should be bearing fruit is not bearing fruit. And he goes into all of John 15, right? Talking about the vine and the branches. Those who remain in me will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, there is no excuse for a believer to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not living like one. He says, if you're a Christ follower, you will act like it, you will look like it, people will see the outward leaves and they'll be able to lift your branch and find fruit. And if they can't, something's wrong. Something is wrong. So Jesus is very powerfully, and you see it more than once, he very powerfully gets frustrated when he does not see fruit. This is part of the reason he's frustrated with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lots of leaves, lots of leaves, no fruit, no fruit whatsoever. So we really take that to heart today, that there should be fruit, fruit that will last. And if there is not fruit, what is going on with our spiritual life? Something is wrong. So I'm grateful that that Jesus did this. I'm grateful that I finally understand that it is likely a fig should have been on that tree. And Jesus did not simply get angry at the tree. That's not what was going on here. Jesus was declaring 
his power to give life and to take it. He was declaring his power to bring judgment on that which does not produce fruit. So let's come to the second question then, because the second question is really part of this part of this story as well, part of this event. And it just has to do with the issue of prayer and faith and how the two work together. The disciples are amazed when they saw Jesus curse the fig tree and ask, how did it wither so quickly? I mean, it went from alive to dead really fast. And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. We read this passage, and if you read it on the service, it basically seems to say, if you have enough faith, you can do anything. Let me tell you about an interesting spiritual moment for Dennis. In 2001, some friends uh, took us to Israel. It was a great time. Get to go see the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if anybody else has done this that's gone to Israel. I suspect it's happened more than once. I don't know where Kim was at this particular moment, But I went down from the hotel we were in down to the beach, and I'm there by the water, and it's the Sea of Galilee. And I took off my shoes. I just wanted to see how hard that water was, right? Is it possible? Lord, I have faith. Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, I can go book it across the lake? Can I do? I went down like a rock very, very quickly, feet underwater. I went, oh, well, I tried. I tried. I read this verse, and it seems to say, if I had had enough faith, I could have walked across the water, right? Isn't that the way we read some of these verses when Jesus is talking about prayer? It seems to say, if we just believe enough, anything, anything can happen. Well, what do we do with this verse? Because Jesus said it. It seems to say, if I have enough faith. And by the way, in another passage, he says, enough is mustard seed style. Have y'all seen a peppercorn? It's smaller than that. A lot, I mean, peppercorn faith to me would be big enough, right? Mustard seed faith, tiny, tiny amount of faith. Here's the thing we need to do when we see a verse like this. The first is this. Any verse taken on its own is trouble. Any verse taken on its own is trouble. And I say that extreme. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. John 3, 16 on its own is pretty good, Right? It tells you the way to God. But when we pick and choose verses, when we choose a single verse and decide to base an entire theology on a single verse, we often get ourselves in trouble. The Bible has a lot more to say about prayer than just this verse. A lot. The Bible says that if I regard iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. How does that go together with if I have enough faith? Can I have enough faith? If I have, there, are, there are verses that qualify other verses. And so we need to understand the whole of what's going on in what the Bible says about prayer and not just a single verse. So Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't even have to go to a commentary. We just start looking at other parts of Scripture to decide what did Jesus mean by this and other parts of Scripture help us to understand what it says. That's the wrong slide. Here, let's go to the second. The second is this. Does prayer have a magic formula? I think some of us think prayer has a magic formula. 
I think some of us think that if we just, okay, if our sin is confessed, if I have enough faith, if I pray with two or three other people, if I do this, if I do that, I am guaranteed an answer. And we need to be, we need to be very, very careful that we don't fall into a mentality that there is a magic formula for answered prayer. If I do these three, four, five things, I'll get what I want every time. It doesn't work that way. And I think for a lot of us, and I include myself in this, there are times that you, you fall into a magic formula mentality. The key to answer prayer is blah, blah, blah. Like, the key to answer prayer is, is God going to answer it? <laughs> that's, that's the key to answer prayer, right? I mean, is this, is this in the will of God or not? And so we need to be careful that we, about falling into kind of a, a magic formula mentality. It can, it can get us into, into some big trouble. And the third is, and this one, I just, I, I got to say it, it really, 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 really bugs me when people suggest somehow <clears throat> that a person's prayer was not answered because they did not have enough faith. Jesus can say that I'm good with that, right? Because Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. I've known people that have had dreadful diseases. I've known people who have had family members that have dreadful diseases, and they have prayed with mountainous faith. And for some reason, God chose not to answer. And when these schmucks on TV will play their game and then suggest to somebody that they didn't get their healing because they did not have enough faith, that is just that is bad news. That is bad news. Jesus calls on us to have faith. He certainly does. But I'm telling you this too. Sometimes it takes tremendous faith to receive the answer, no. It takes tremendous faith to receive the answer, wait. And so the idea that we would judge somebody else and say the reason you didn't get what you want is because you did not have enough faith, that's up to God to judge. That is not our place at all. And so we need to be careful of somehow suggesting that we have to have enough faith to get there. We can go with what the words of Jesus say, but it's not up to us to determine that. I hope that made sense. Anyway, the third question was about the coin. And I'm looking at time and realizing that we're probably not going to get to question four. But I know, Dominique, I know. And we'll get there, I promise. But we're, we're down to it. So Jesus has this moment that the Pharisees come to him. And I love when it says, you know, it starts with this. When the Pharisees went and plotted on how to untangle him with his words. I mean, these guys, they're always trying to trip up Jesus. They're always trying to get him. So they're trying, teacher, we know you are the true, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anybody's opinion and you are not swayed by appearances. I mean, they just butter him up, right? Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then he gets into this whole thing, has him pull out a coin whose inscription is on that, uh, render to Caesar things that are Caesar, to God things that are God. And, and so we have, in fact, then, you know, he has Peter go catch fish, they pay their tax, they're good to go. Um, the question on this one was really interesting because... <clears throat> The person wasn't asking so much just about, you know, should you pay taxes or not pay taxes or whatever, but 
the, the coin, the coin that, Je- that the, Jesus had them pulled out had Caesar's face on it. So here's the question. When Jesus asked the Pharisees to show him the coin used for taxes, was he, in fact, trapping them because of having pagan coins in the temple? And was it against religious law? Or was it, in fact, the, the time that they were only certifying it and was, and, and the, certifying it was the correct silver weight and image of other kings on the coin didn't matter. So it's kind of was Jesus zinging them in return. You shouldn't have that coin here. What's going on? And, And I investigated the sources that I find credible and I could find nothing about this whatsoever. So here's what I, I love about the question. <clears throat> we need to bring our curiosity to Scripture. The way we learn is to ask questions. It's a beautiful question. And it is a question that we will learn the answer to about 75,000 years from now in Coins 101, elective, offered by Matthew, the disciple. Okay? (laughs) Um, There are some things, at least right now, that we can't know. Archaeology is always uncovering new, new discoveries. It's fascinating. I will say, too, archaeologists are uncovering things and still getting it wrong. Kim and I were having this, we were watching this show the other night. It, it was about, uh, the, about the 12th century and all the civilizations that kind of died at that point. And, they, and then we go into the Dark Ages. And they were wondering, what, how did all these civilizations die all at once? And a typical documentary, you know, they're going to tell us the answer in the last two minutes, and we're spending an hour with all this leading, 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 leading. And we finally get to the end, and the guy says, here's what we've concluded. The civilizations died. They had a number of reasons, but the first two reasons, climate change. I'm like, that word is 10 years old. <laughs> the term, you know, remember when it was global warming, but then it wasn't warming, and so they went broader. Um, climate change and immigration. Even the brilliant can be stupid sometimes. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, so I took all my stuff that I know today and transported it to the past and said, here it is, here's the answer. Um, we, can, we can try to discover answers that we can't know because we weren't there. And so I love the question. And I, and I think the question is worth a lot more investigation one of the problems with a question like this is if you Google it, somebody's probably got an answer. And it might be wrong. So again, I'm trying to go toward reputable sources and saying, is this, has this actually been talked about? Um, but I, I love the question. I love the question. And I wish I had the answer. So withhold my paycheck this week. I didn't know the answer to that. All right. <laughs> the final question is about the end. Matthew chapter 24. And we're already two minutes over. So I had already planned on next week, we're just spending the whole time talking about Matthew chapter 24. Um, Because Jesus comes down to this verse. Let me get there. Ding, 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 ding. Ding. Here it is. So also, also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near and and at the very gate. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. And the boxes, who is this generation? And what are all these things? 
and those two, those two issues determine the meaning of the entire passage. So have fun searching God questions this week, all right? This is what we're going to focus all of Matthew 24, because Matthew 24 talks about the end. The end is always fascinating to believers. I'll tell you what, if we offer something on end times, that one's full all the time, right? We're fascinated with wanting to know, how's it all going to come to an end? It's, it's a part of the human heart to be curious. But here Jesus talks about the end, and he says a lot of things that um, on the surface are confusing. And yet as we dig into this, uh, boy, he's giving us some really great stuff. So I love that last verse. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Everything Jesus said is accurate and true and can be believed and can be trusted. So, Father God in heaven, thank you so much <clears throat> for letting us explore Matthew and the things we've learned from him as he's written this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The very word of God, inerrant, infallible, perfect. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, uh, again, it would never just end with an intellectual fascination, but that we would be transformed by what your word has to say pray next week as we dig into Matthew 24 that you would give us the, the sense of urgency that's found at the end of that chapter, that sense that Jesus could come back at any moment, and I want to be ready. I never want to be sleeping at the switch. I never want to be ignoring or, or not have enough oil for my lamp. I want to be ready for the coming of Jesus at any moment. And so, God, I pray that you will Help us as we all uh, look a little further at Matthew chapter 24 this week to understand what you're saying there and, and to be drawn closer to you because of the natural curiosity and fascination you've given us for the way the world will end. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've not been with us before or this is uh, a newer experience for you, when we when we go to communion as a church, we made a decision, my goodness, probably about 15 years ago now, to do two things in communion that we had not done for the first uh, 120 years of our existence. One is that we were going we to go to communion every week. We weren't just going to do it on the first Sunday of the month, but we're going to do it every week because Jesus says, every time you do this, you proclaim my death until he comes back. And so every time we come to the moment of communion, it, it's an evangelistic moment. It's a, it's a moment for a person who does not know Jesus to say pe see people taking the bread, taking the cup, and saying, what is that all about? And to understand that there is a God in heaven who sent his son to die for us, to be buried, and to rise again so that we could have eternal life. So we, we do this every week. The other thing is that we walk to communion. And uh, for many, many years, we, we passed a tray row to row, and it was, it was convenient. The tray comes to you, you take your bread, you take your cup, and, and we do communion. And instead, we chose to, to walk to communion to make sure that every week it is an intentional decision. I've taken the time to examine my heart and confess sin. I, I desire, I desire to live in communion with Jesus. And so we have tables set up around the room. We have two at the front and uh, and a couple at the back, we have gluten-free on either side of the platform as well as a gluten-free station at the back. But we want to walk. And, and that walk is not as, uh, not as efficient as a tray passing, but it's not about efficiency. It's about intentionally making that decision. 
am I in the place to take communion today? And so, Father God, uh, as we read and listen to Matthew 26 today, we know that is in that chapter, Jesus took bread, he took cup. This is my body broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat of this, as often as you drink of this, remember me. And every time you do, you declare my death until I come back. We are glad that we get to declare your death today, Jesus. And we long for you to come back soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to communion. Every once in a while, I like to say, you know, we clap not to say, wow, good job, guys. That was amazing. But to say, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. I agree with that message. It's like, it's like saying amen without your lips. You know what I mean? We're just, amen. That, that, I, I believe that. I agree with that. And I got to tell you today, I have witnessed it. I've witnessed the power of God. Even, even this weekend, I have seen the power of God. Yesterday, I got to go to a birthday party for a guy who just turned 60, which I find is very, very young, practically a child. <laughs> Kim's cousin, Kim's cousin, who when he was an infant, not even a year old, had cancer, and a death sentence pronounced on him. It was done. It was done. He was going to die. And yesterday we celebrated his birthday and he was standing there among us. God's power is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Does he always choose to answer the prayer the way we want to? No, he is God. He knows all things and as the song says, he has good plans for us. He knows the plans. But sometimes he'll answer in a way that just causes us to say, I, I saw a miracle. I saw a miracle. God worked miraculously. And to be able to be at that party yesterday was just, I mean, it was in Gurney. It's a drive, right? But we had a great time celebrating the life that God gave Jeff. So as you're leaving today, you'll notice out in the hallway, we've got a table set up, and they're, they're selling Refuge and Revive merch. And, you know, after you talk about Jesus flipping tables and such, you wonder, are we, are we, are we violating the holy covenant of God here, selling merch? Well, Julie Conroy, our ministries assistant, is the one that's making sure that that gets done today. She's got a couple of girls helping out there. And the idea here, the, 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 Jesus wasn't condemning selling. What he was condemning was false, false religion. He was condemning a lie. So if you go up to buy a sweatshirt and the girls say, if you buy one of these, you will have eternal life, flip the table, all right? <laughs> flip the table. But if they say you will be warm, if it's cold outside, buy it and have some fun, okay? <laughs> We'll see you later.